Amen. You can be seated. So before we jump in real quick, I, I just want to take a minute. So we finished our first VBS this week. Uh, you guys have probably heard about it, and many of you served there. Uh, and, and many of you were here every night last week and are probably just tired of church. But there's a reality that it's not just those that served last week. This has been going on. We've been preparing for this really since March. And so some of you, while I want to say thank you to all of you, some of you really went above and beyond. And so if you were, if you were on the, the design team uh, putting things together, really starting back a while ago, I mean, this was weekends. I'd ask you to stand up, and I want to just honor you for all your hard work. So come on. Come on. Get up. All right. So where's Amy? Yeah, she doesn't want to be recognized, but the, the, the two Amys, uh, Matt's wife Amy and my, my wife Amy, they, they really started this. They spearheaded it. If you were teaching last week and you're in the room, please stand up. All right. So, so in some way, I mean, if you were here, you saw something fabulous happen. We got to deal with about probably in total across the week, about 40 to 45 kids, many of whom don't have a church home. They're, they're, they're not in a church at all. Um, but what we were able to do together, I, it was phenomenal. And I just want to thank you for being a part of that. So uh, anyway, all right, so enough of my mushy, touchy-feely. Uh, let's get down to business, right? So it's a little more what you're used to. Um, Anyway, so last week we started into, we took kind of stepped out of Peter's first letter. We've been in this process of talking about what it is to be a healthy church for, for weeks and weeks and weeks. And so we've been in this process, and we came to this place in Peter's letter that we had to ask a question. What happens when we don't follow the call? Peter had given us a call. He had given us a, a command. He had summarized all that he had been teaching through the first two chapters. He had summarized them in the middle of chapter 2, telling us to to abstain from sin and telling us to, uh, to, to live honorably and do good so that other people are led to glorify God, so other people are led to worship the God we love. And, and so we had to ask the question, what happens when we don't? And, and he doesn't deal with that explicitly in his letter, and, and the truth is, is that no one deals with every issue in their letters, and we, it's okay for us to take a time and step aside and look at what the Bible has to say to answer these questions. And so we turn then to Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. We'll be there again today. If you've got a Bible, you're welcome to go ahead and turn there. But we look to Jesus' teaching on church discipline. What does Jesus expect? What has he commanded? What has he instructed us to do when we don't fulfill the call that he's given us, when, when we don't live in the way he expects us to as Christians, do we have a, a right? Do we have an expectation? Is there any authority to act in such a way to, to call one another back to a lifestyle that honors God, that, that worships God in life and leads others to worship God in all of life? Do we have that role? Is that even expected of us? Or are we to do what our culture would have us do and just leave one another alone. To each his own, right? I mean, it's their private life. What, what does it matter? It's their decision. They get to do whatever they want. They're free to live however they want to, want to live. That's what our culture would say. That's what, that's what the world around us would say. But Jesus, he's got a different answer. He's got a, a different expectation of his people. We saw that we do have that right 
it is expected. We do have authority based on his instruction. So let's read it again and just and just get it fresh in our heads. And then we'll work through our uh, text today or our lesson today. He says, Matthew 18, beginning in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. This is a positive thing. We're just going to take a break. This is, this is positive. This is winning something. This is, this is not negative. It's not a, it's not a hey, I'm going to come and pinpoint every little one of your flaws and I'm going to rub it in your face. It's a, it's a desire to gain your brother, to win something, to, to positively affect another person. He goes on in verse 16, But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Broaden the scope. Verse 17, If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to even to the church, even to the church, he says, let him be to you as a Gentile tax collector. See, it's really somber right there in that moment. At the end of verse 17, there's a somber note. Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. What they would have heard was, let him be to you as one who has never been a part of the covenant, or let him be to you as one who is a traitor to the covenant. Gentiles were never part of the covenant people of God. They never belonged to God's people. Tax collectors were traitors. They had become complicit. They were basically climbed into bed with the Roman government and were working against the Jewish people, extorting money and causing suffering. So let them be to you as that. That's somber. That's serious. Truly, truly I say to you, he says in verse 18, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He is giving us divine authority to act in this way. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything that you ask, it will be done for them by, the, by, by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. We have been given authority to enact together. It's not a one-man show. It's not a one-man responsibility. It's not one person's job to be running around making sure everything, everybody's living up to the expectation but together we have been given this responsibility. Together we have been given this uh, authority to call one another to live in the way Jesus expects. So, so we defined it. And we'll just, I'm just going to state these for those that weren't here. I'm going I'm I'm to state them and that's it. We're not going to really deal with them. I just want you to have some of the definitions and some of the stuff in your mind as we move forward. I would encourage you, if, especially if you're a member of this church, I would encourage you to go back and listen to the podcast and hear the explanations that go behind these. But we answered the question first, what is church discipline? What is it? We need to know what it is. We need to have a definition that we can work with. And from this text, from this passage, we defined it this way. Church discipline is Jesus' plan. It's Jesus' plan to maintain purity and unity among his church that we, may, that we may continue in fellowship with him and each other. Purity and unity for fellowship with him, with God, and one another. Those two things. We talked about two different forms of that uh, Discipline of, of that church discipline, the formative kind of church discipline that kind of happens day in, day out. So this is discipleship. 
You know, we're, we're living together. We're calling one another to holiness. We're teaching one another true doctrine. We're, we're, we're encouraging one another to repent of sin. We're, we're patting one another on the back, uh, uh, affirming one another in good works. We're, we're serving one another. We're loving one another. We're, we're forgiving one another. We, we're doing these things day in, day out. Everyday discipleship. But there's the corrective form, which really Jesus moves into real quickly in this process. This corrective form of discipline is the process of restoring someone trapped in sin. So you have a brother or sister in Christ who you see trapped in sin in some way, and you love them enough. You act in such a way that you, you, you are so concerned for their good that you just cannot stay away. That you put yourself at risk and you enter into the Enter, enter into the struggle with them and call them to repentance. And we answered the question, not only what is church discipline, but why is it so necessary? I told you at the beginning of the service last Sunday that if we are going to maintain and grow in church health, this is not something we can talk about. This is not something we can just sit by and think is a good idea. We need church discipline. It's necessary for our, our health as believers in Jesus Christ. Why is it so necessary for a church to do this? And I showed you from this text that it's necessary because we still sin. Surprise, surprise, you got saved and you still have a struggle with sin. You need to be disciplined. I need to be disciplined. It is something we need. We need to be called to repentance because we still sin. We are easily deceived. Easily deceived. Our hearts are deceptive inside of us, and, and they would have us believe that we are doing great and noble things for God's glory when really what we want is to be approved by men. We lie to ourselves all the time. We need one another to point out our sin so that we can be called to repentance. All of our life should be marked by repentance. And because it's in repentance, it's necessary because it's in repentance that our sin, or, or, or in response to our sin, in repentant response to our sin, that is where we're able to enjoy fellowship with God and each other. If you and I walk in sin unrepentantly, we drive a wedge in our relationship with the Lord and we distance ourselves from the community of believers through whom he chooses to work. That is, not, that, that is bad. That is not good for you. Ultimately, even if all three of those weren't important enough for us to do it, if all three of those weren't enough to convince you, the final reason from this text is that Jesus didn't offer this as advice. He didn't say, if you feel like it. He said, do it. It is a command. It's, it's, a, it's, it's an expectation he has for his people. He desires that his church, he desires that his people would be marked by holiness, that they would be marked by purity, that they would be unified, that, that as he and the Father are one, we are one. He, he desires for his church to be pure and to be distinct from the world around it. We should not look. We should not act. We should not smell. We should not taste like the world around us. Don't, don't hear me saying that we should reject them or, or neglect them or not love them and not serve them. What I'm saying is that there should be a drastic difference how we live and how we act and how we think and how we, how we use energy and money. Our lives should be radically different. 
Jesus desires that for his church. He desires it so much that he calls us to be so intimately involved, to be so concerned for one another's good, to, to love one another so deeply that we live close enough to one another. And I'm not talking about proximity, I'm talking, I'm talking about intimacy. That we live so close together that we can see when we're stuck in sin so that we can do something about it. He expects that of us because he desires the best for his people. So it's necessary. It's absolutely necessary. And we know, we know now what it is. We know why it's necessary. So what is the process? How do we practice church discipline? I mean, in this passage, I, I read it for you. He doesn't give us this list. You know, it's like he doesn't say, okay, well, a lie is not necessary. You don't have to do discipline for a lie, but you do have to do it for adultery. If, if a guy gets caught with pornography once, he's okay to leave him alone. If he's seen him a second time, he doesn't, he doesn't do that. He gives us a very general process to work out with the wisdom that he instills in us by the Holy Spirit. It's really a five-step process. As I read, you might have only heard four. In fact, he only explicitly explains four. But there is one implied that, that I think is the very beginning of the church discipline process that, that I appreciate, and I want to make sure that we understand it today. So as we look through this, as we work through this, we're going to look, and this is how we will practice church discipline as a body of believers, as a local congregation. This is how we'll practice it. And step one, self-discipline. Now, he doesn't explicitly say practice self-discipline, right? I mean, it's not like he says, okay, step one. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him. That, that sounds like the first step. But, but implied here in the command is, is something more than that. In fact, the whole teaching of Scripture, the whole, the whole purpose and foundation of the New Testament is to teach us how to live. Is to call us to self-control, to self-discipline. In fact, when Paul wrote of the fruit of the Spirit, one singular fruit of the Spirit, he listed nine words. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. So the reality is, if the Holy Spirit, if we have been made alive and the Holy Spirit is indwelling us, as the, as the Scripture teaches us, and, and, and we are living by the power of the Spirit, we not only will love and we not only will experience joy, we will have power to control our bodies. That's the only thing you have control over. That's it. You, you can't control what happens around you. You can't control how other people act. You can't control anything in this world except one thing. By the power of the Spirit, you can control yourself as you live by His power, as you walk in the Spirit. But it's not just Paul talking in Galatians about the fruit of the Spirit. Peter, the very passage that we've been dealing with in First in Peter that led us to ask this question is a call from Peter to practice self-control, to practice self-discipline. Just in case you've forgotten, let me just read it to you. 1 Peter 2, 11-12 Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Who's he talking to? The church. Who, who's going to be responsible for doing that? The individual members of the church. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Abstain from sin. And he goes on, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Who's going to do that? I can't do that for you. You can't do that for me. 
We are responsible to this. It's not just in that passage. The whole letter of 1 Peter is calling us to lives of self-control, of self-discipline. As he said, be holy as he is holy. He, he said, he said in, in chapter 1, he says, to, uh, to abstain from the former passions, to leave them beside you, uh, away from you, so that you can be holy as he who has called you is holy. And he goes on, when we go back into 1 Peter next week, command after command after command, that he expects the church together to obey, but is obeyed by every individual member. It's not just Peter. We've already heard it from Paul. It's not just Paul. John, when he wrote his letter, he called the church to to take responsibility for their sin, to exercise self-control and self-discipline, to not sin. And, and, and we're hearing it here through Matthew, the words of Jesus, this whole chapter. Beginning back at the beginning of chapter 18, at, at the beginning, Jesus is dealing and saying, don't lead a child to sin. Don't sin against a child in such a way that you cause him to sin. Then he turns immediately and says, take drastic measure if you are tempted to sin. Pluck out your eye, cut off your hand. It's better to go into heaven a, 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 a broken, with a broken body than a destroyed soul. He's telling us. He expects us to exercise self-discipline. Church discipline doesn't start with the formal process of us confronting one another. It starts in this moment when you realize I am a believer in Jesus Christ and I am called to live differently. Self-discipline is every church member's day-to-day responsibility. It is our everyday responsibility. What we are called to day in and day out. Being alive in Christ Every temptation we face, being alive in Christ, being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, being being made new, every temptation we face is an opportunity to say no to sin and yes to holiness. And that's what God expects of his people. As we live day to day doing this, saying yes to holiness and no to sin, the, the reality is if we were really good at this, if we were really perfect, if we had this part figured out, we wouldn't need the rest of the we wouldn't need the rest of the process. But Jesus knows us too well. He knows we're going to falter. He knows we're going to fall. He knows we're going to fail. And so he he makes room for grace. He makes room for truth to do its work in His people through a process. He loves us enough that He just doesn't kick us out of the fold. But He says, "Let me help you." It gives us this process. Self-discipline is where church discipline starts and where it ends. Self-discipline is where church discipline starts and where it ends. You see, we, we aren't going to live up to every command. We are going to fall. We are going to stumble. We, we are going to sin. We are not going to exercise self-discipline perfectly. But Jesus says, I have a plan for you. I love you enough that I won't leave you in it. I'm concerned for your good enough that I won't leave you struggling in the weight and the darkness and, 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 and the lack of fellowship. I long for you. 
and I have for you something. And, and the desire, the, the desire is to, is to, is to see self-discipline break down. The, the, the process is to see self-discipline break down in, in, in a person's life, to be so close and intimately involved that you see self-discipline break down and a person caught in the junk and the, 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 the sin of life and to be able to come in and stand by them and pick them up to shine the light of the gospel into their life that they might repent and return back to self-discipline. Last week I said it like this. Corrective church discipline begins where repentance ends. And it ends where repentance begins. It's the same thing said a different way with different terminology. This is not about just shaming people. It's about standing together that we might live by, as the people of God have been called to live. So, so please, hear me. If you see me caught in sin, don't leave me there. Don't leave me there. I will come to you. I won't leave you there. Let's make that commitment together. This is Jesus' plan for us. But when it breaks down, when, when it goes wrong, we need to move to action. We need to move to the next step. This is what Jesus has called us to. And that step is one-to-one. One-to-one. You, you observe the sin and you go and show it to your brother. And, and, and oftentimes we don't get the greatest reaction in this, right? I mean, I mean we don't go do this now because we, we, we assume that they're not going to be very happy with us. They're not going to like what we have to say. Nobody in sin does. I mean, nobody wants to be caught, right? It moves on to step three. We'll explain these more in just a second. Step three, bring in one or two others. You see, the thing is, it stops. In, in the moment, if, if that person responds well, if that person repents and, and turns back to self-discipline, then there's no more need. You don't have to go on. You've done it. Boom. Everything's great. We can walk together as brothers in Christ. But what happens if they don't? You move on to step three. Bring in one or two others. This is, this is not witnesses in the sense of eyewitnesses, like they saw it and now can come and prove it. You know, our judicial system works best with eyewitnesses because then everybody can feel certain that the right thing is happening. Jesus isn't calling for eyewitnesses. He's calling for people who can come into the situation and observe and hear the testimony on both sides and provide witness. First, witness the event and the accusation. So you've gone to your brother, you sinned, and your brother says, no, I didn't. And so the person who comes with the accusation says, you know what, let me get some witnesses. So you go and you bring a couple of people in. And, and, and while they're there, everything's great, you know, oh, everything's good, until they realize that the person making the accusation is actually the one sinning and they're lying. Do you think every accusation made is always true? <laughs> No, we misunderstand a lot of things. We misperceive. We dream up assumptions about people. I'm, there's things assumed about me all the time, and I'm confronted about things all the time, constantly. And it's just a matter of sitting down and talking through it. I'll, I'll repent, I'll own what I need to own, but it's not always just about me. Sometimes the person accusing me has something to own themselves. That's what the witnesses are about, because the reality is they may be 
they may need to turn and confront the accuser. But they also may need to stand with the, the accuser and say, no, brother, you're caught in sin. You are caught in sin. Repent. And if he listens, that's awesome. Then it ends. It's over. You can walk together then as brothers in Christ. If not, we move to step forward, bring in the whole church. That's a last-ditch effort to maintain unity. To be a people, to be a local body of believers that care so much about the one, the individual, that we would go to them, that we would pursue them in the same way that the Father has pursued us in our sin. To be so concerned and, and recognize the dev devastation and destruction that sin brings and to care so much for the person that we couldn't leave them there because we weren't left there. That's what it is. I mean, this is the image of God at work in us, pursuing us, moving into our darkness that we might be brought into light. This is what he's calling us to, and it's not, it's not a, a local, uh, localized uh, hierarchy of people. This is the church. Bring it to the whole church. You see, this process, it's an ever-widening circle. It's an ever-widening circle, bringing, not to heap more guilt, not to heap more guilt, not to, not to just bring more shame, but to increase the presence of truth and grace in this person's life. Church discipline is never about shame, but restoration. It demands we expose sin to enough light to kill it. Sin does not have a place among God's people. We need the light to cause it to shrivel and die. People who love their sin, you know, they, they don't want this. They're... They're, they're, they're not going to want to experience this kind of thing. They're not going to want to live that close to people so that people can see their junk. And, and they're going to try to hide so that no one finds out. They're going to try to cover up. They're, and if they're found out, they're going to tend to withdraw. But when we truly understand just how devastating sin is, we will long for someone to come and get us. I am telling you, come get me. Please, come get me, and I will come get you. There is no such thing as pet sin. It is a beast that desires to devour you. You can pet it, and you can feel all good about it, but it is destroying you, and one day it's going to reach out and bite your head off. It is not to be toyed with. As God said to, to Cain just before he killed his brother Abel, God looked, at Cain, God looked upon him and he said, Sin is crouching at your door. And it desires you. It desires you. It wants your destruction. It wants devastation. It wants you to experience darkness. He wants you to be caught in the cold depths of despair. But, he says, God says, you must rule over it. By the power of the Spirit, we have been given the ability to do that, to exercise self-discipline. But when we can't, we should love one another enough to step in and restore our brother and our sister in Christ. 
It's never about shame. It's never about condemnation. It is about restoration. The problem, here's the problem, is that we don't, not, not only do people in sin struggle with wanting help out, but to be honest, we don't really do this that well, do we? I mean, I, I've not seen a lot of instances in church discipline because many churches don't practice it at all. But when I have, it's oftentimes done poorly. And, and we are going to make mistakes. We need to be able to forgive as we've been forgiven. We need to be able to strive to give one another the benefit of the doubt. But, but brothers and sisters, we, we need to strive to do this as well as we can, as good as we can. We need to understand it. Church discipline is never about nitpicking the speck in your brother's eye while ignoring the plank in your own. See, Jesus isn't about, in this passage, he's not about giving us all the specifics and, and every little sin you see, you better run. You, I hope you got your, your, your wallet-sized stone tablets in your pocket with the Ten Commandments on them so you smack people with it, right? You got it? You, you carrying it? Oh, that's a lie! That, that's not what he's calling us to. Not, not anywhere close. Got a little excited. My mic about fell off of me. That's, that's not what he's saying. He, he's calling us to be concerned in this, to love one another, to, to, to recognize that we all have sin and we all have a responsibility to fight against it. So let's do that. But let's enter into the corrective discipline process gently, patiently, with great humility. Jay Adams, in his book, and, and this is one of two books that I would commend to you, the Bible first, of course, but, but Jay Adams wrote a book, Handbook of Church Discipline, A Right and Privilege of Every Church Member. He says this, that we should really move into this, into this uh, corrective process, into this formal process of church discipline if the sin creates an unreconciled state in the family. So if the sin is great enough that it divides you, like you can't get past it, you, you, you just can't walk together anymore. That it's caused division that you just can't deal with. Who's responsible to go? Not the one who sinned, but the one who observed the sin or who is the offended party. Then, then go. If you, can't, if you can't walk together, then go. Jonathan Lehman, the second book I would commend to you, Church Discipline, How the Church Protects the Name of Jesus, another great book. On, on how to practice and, and how to act in church discipline. Jonathan Lehman writes, formal church discipline or excommunication, that's the end result if a person continues in unrepentance. Formal church discipline or excommunication is warranted when an individual seems happily to, to happily abide in known sin. There's no evidence that the Spirit is making him or her uncomfortable other than the discomfort of getting caught. If, if a person's life, he goes on to describe it like this, if a person's life is so unrepentant that they don't seem sorry for sin or bothered by sin, then we need to act on their behalf. If they are a professing believer in Jesus Christ, something is radically wrong. Something is missing. They are in it. If a person can say, well, I looked at porn last night, but you know what? It's okay. I'll be all right. Well, hey, let me let me let me help you in that. Let me let me hold you accountable. No, no, no. You, you know you, you don't understand. I, I got it. It's good. If a person isn't bothered by their sin, 
If, if a person can, can continue walking in it and not feel some level of disgust and, and, and defilement by their sin, then there is an issue. We, we, we must act. I, th- I think these are both good standards to follow. That, that no, we don't need to run around smacking people with our little pocket Ten Commandments. Because the reality is, is somebody might turn around and smack you back with theirs. Let's walk giving one another the benefit of the doubt until we see that there is a wedge driven so hard that it has to be removed. Let's talk about the elephant in the room. Or if we see that that person is comfortable just living in filth. If you walk into that to that person's life and they are a hoarder of sin. You've seen the show, Hoarders. Nobody wants to live, well, some people like to live in those houses, but most of us wouldn't. If you find a person hoarding sin that's professing Christ, they are, there's something off. We must act. Church discipline is not permission to gossip about the struggles of a brother. If you won't go to them, keep your opinion to yourself. I think this is the place we fail the most. It's this opinion. I mean, I, I don't know. It's just my experience tells me this. We have lots of people who want to talk about other people's struggles to everyone but the person in sin. Brothers and sisters, that's gossip. And that's sin. That has no place among us. That is a cancer that will eat away at the unity that God desires for us. I tell people this all the time, and I'll stand by it. If you feel offended or you have observed your brother or sister in sin and you think something needs to be done, then you don't go say anything until you've talked to that person. And if you won't go and confront that person, then you must let it go. You cannot carry a grudge. You cannot hold them accountable for it. You cannot do anything about it. You must act as if it's never happened. Because Jesus commanded us to go. And if it's bad enough to bother you, and yet you won't go, you have no right to say another thing about it. You have to release it. Otherwise, you become the offending party, and you sin against your brother or sister in Christ. This is difficult. Especially, this is probably in our church, I'm just going to be honest, in our church this is probably the most difficult because we are a group full of introverts. If you're visiting here today and you thought, man, these people are kind of, these people are friendly. Well, that's a surprise because we're a bunch of introverts scared to death to say hello to anybody, right? If you felt welcome, then praise God, that's a miracle. If you didn't, then no, you're in a room full of introverts. We're scared to death to say hello to anybody. Give us a little grace, please. That's, it's a struggle because we, we don't want to be offensive. We don't want to be hurtful. We, we justify it under the lens of, of, I'm going to love this person. I'm just going to love them. No, if you love them, you'll pursue them. You'll give yourself up for them. You'll go to them. That's love. That's, that's, that's how Jesus loved you. And now he says, love one another this way. J. Adams, again, another helpful rule of thumb. The rule of thumb by which to determine whether the matter should be handled is this. I skipped past a whole section of my notes because I'm getting rushed. 
This is not to say that every part of church discipline, this process has to happen every time. Let me say it like this. This is not to say that every part of this process has to happen every time. There is a reality that something may come to public attention and not require you to go by yourself. Say, say somebody in the church starts posting on Facebook, Jesus isn't God, right? And you're with a group of people. Now, if you're by yourself and you see it, you need to go talk to that person. If you're with a group of people and it's like, whoa, everybody's like, can't believe it. It happens, right? Then the group can go to that person. There's nothing wrong with skipping right to the group portion. There's nothing wrong with bypassing a step. As long as you don't begin to do it to the, to the neglect of others. Let me, let me give you this rule of thumb from Jay Adams. The rule of thumb by which, we, by which to determine where, where the matter should be handled is this. What level of the process do we enter into discipline at? Deal with the problem on the level at which it presents itself. Making every effort to involve no one other than those already involved. So, if you don't know if they know about your brother's sin... You don't need to be the one to tell them until you've talked to your brother. Paul in Corinth, he didn't say about the man who was sleeping with his dad's wife. He didn't say, hey, one of you go and confront him. And then two of you go and confront him. And then maybe just the rest of the church go and confront him. He said, kick him out. Get rid of him. Get, get, get him away from you. Because it was so public. Everybody already knew about it. There was no, no need. In fact, that he was confronting them because they were celebrating the sin rather than getting rid of him. Get rid of him. If, if the sin is public, let it be public. Deal with it publicly. But where it rears its ugly head, begin at that level and deal with it until it's dealt with. If the person repents, if the person can, begins to walk again in self-discipline, it is done. But if it isn't, we come to step five. That somber, serious, real moment where the church has a serious a decision to make that holds in it much weight. See, what's happening in this step five is the church is determining, based on everything they can see, whether or not the person's profession of faith was true or false. This is not something to be run into quickly. It's not something to be run into and just done lightly. Brothers and sisters, this is handing them over and, and looking at them as if they have never been saved. And if you can feel good about that, and you can take that, with, with, with no weight at all. And be careful and check your heart. If we come to this point, there's a reality that we cut them off from the community of the church. Does that mean that we shouldn't speak to them if we see them in public? Does that mean that we shouldn't welcome them in our public gatherings? Does that mean that we shouldn't, um, uh, uh, if, if we see them on the street, that we should run to the other side because we don't want to get any of their dirtiness on us? Is that what it should mean? I, I don't think so. We're to treat them as tax collectors and Gentiles. How do we treat tax collectors and Gentiles? In its final form, in this final step, church discipline 
turns back to evangelism. We call them to believe in Jesus and repent of their sin. Every dealing with them from here on out should be evangelistic and missional to the point that we draw them back to the body and believers in Jesus Christ. This is the authority given to the church. What we bind on earth is bound in heaven. What we loose on earth is loosed in heaven. Brothers and sisters, I'm not telling you that we can change God's mind about a person, whether they're a believer or not. That's not what he's telling us. What what he's saying is that we are the determining factor of whether they enjoy the fellowship of God and his people or not. And at some point, if a person continues in unrepentant sin, we must remove them from the fellowship, that they must be removed from the presence of God in this world, that they might either sense the loss or be treated as a lost person that then is evangelized and brought back, called back to the church. What happens if that person repents? We forgive them completely. As far as the east is from the west, our sin has been removed from us and we treat them in that way. We celebrate passionately. The story of the, of the prodigal son comes to mind as the father sees him coming back. He runs to meet him. He kills the fatted calf. He puts the cloak on him. He puts a ring on his finger. He brings him into his house. He celebrates. Brothers and sisters, we have the hope of a day sitting in heaven around a table that the the wedding feast of the Lamb will be taking place. We can begin that celebration today because every lost person that believes is another person in the kingdom, another soul that will spend eternity with our God, and we should throw a party. We should be excited for them. And we live closely. It's the heartbeat of our church to not just be a people who are distantly connected, loosely connected, but to be a people who, who together serve, love, and follow our Father who has saved us by His Son and indwelt us with His Spirit. We bring them in and we live closely with them. We enjoy communion with them in relationship. We enjoy celebrating communion in them in services. We commune. Again, we serve again. We, 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 we walk together again. This is church discipline. This is what we've been called to, how we've been called to do it. Let's pray.